I'm Eric Bricker, and I've been a psychotherapist for over 25 years. One thing I can tell you for certain is that no one makes it through life unscathed. At some point, many of us will rely on the trusted counsel of another person to help us navigate difficult times, or to reconcile the troubled past. Whether conventional or unconventional, professional or informal, there are a lot of different forms that helping relationships can take. This podcast is an exploration into what makes these relationships work. Who are the people that help us? How do they help us? And what do people need help with? My hope is to uncover as much as I can about this very human phenomenon, and I hope that you'll join me. This is the Good Counsel Podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Eric Bricker, and this is the Good Counsel Podcast. Tommy McGee, take two. <laughs> Tommy, welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, it's, it's great. I'm uh, really glad that you're here for a lot of reasons, actually. So about a month or so ago, you came in. We were attempting to do this interview. I had a file-saving snafu that resulted in me losing about two hours of what I thought was really great interview footage. I was so thrilled with what we covered that day, and the fact that I just lost it was devastating to me. And what was more devastating was the prospect of calling you up on the phone and explaining <laughs> that to you. <laughs> That's not a phone call you want to have to make. You tell somebody like, hey, you know that two hours we just did? I know it was great and everything, but uh, yeah, it's like gone. So I called you up and I was so grateful because if you were in fact angry in there anywhere, I certainly didn't know it. And I remember coming away from that thinking, Tommy McGee is possibly the most rock solid person I have ever met as far as just being non-reactive. And I go back to like, you and I have known each other a long time. Yeah. Colleagues in a few different places. I go back all the way to us working together at the Wellness Resource Center. It was really like an exceptional program. It still is. A lot of these clients, if they weren't there, they would probably would have been in psychiatric hospitals. So this was really, when you think about least restrictive environments and the kind of places that folks like this are often treated, this was kind of an experimental thing. This was an opportunity to be treated in the community. Right. But a lot goes on with that, right? When you have somebody who has you know, a comorbid thought disorder and is in post with cute withdrawal from methamphetamines. That's, that's a complicated individual <laughs> yeah. who could be, you know, somewhat quirky in their habits. And aggressive sometimes. And aggressive and, you know, <laughs> right. not rational. Right. And, you know. Right. And your handling of these people at residence, it was the same thing. And no matter what it was, you were always that, like, rock-solid dude that seemed inflappable at <laughs> I all times. That. That was, people talked about it all the time. So when you think about your elevation in your career as you've evolved into the different things that you've you've done and the things that you're doing now, the work that we did together, the Seminole Tribe, and then what you did at Immersion, and the fact that you were such a respected leader in that uh, program, it's not surprising at all because I could see it, you know, it's this big treatment program with a lot of clients and I'm sure there are crises and things going on at all times. And I imagine that the staff there relied upon you heavily 
to be that sort of non-reactive, rock-solid voice of reason and wisdom that's going to like move us forward, you know? Yeah, I appreciate it. I really do. I appreciate that. And I got my own little taste of it when I lost that footage and <laughs> had to call you up and explain it to you. So I appreciate really on a lot of different levels that you're here giving us another shot because uh, that didn't that did not feel good. Well, I enjoyed it. I mean, like you said, we talked about, you know, several different things, you know, spanning our relationship, some of the current events. And so I enjoyed just downloading some of that stuff and talking about, you know, recurring some of the experiences that we shared, both with wellness, the tribe. So, yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. So, I I mean, doing it again, just look forward to it. Thank you. And that's the big challenge of the day, right? Can we recapture the magic of that day? (laughs) And overcome my technological acumen issues to retain the interview once it's recorded and so that it might be shared with the world. (laughs) We'll see what that all ends up looking like uh, in the end. So starting kind of like where we started last time, one of the things that you and I shared more recently, and it really was profoundly impactful to me because I had not really had an inside view of African-American mental health in the way that I could learn about it and experience it when you and I attended Kenny Stills, his foundation, Still Growing. And Kenny Stills is a professional football player. At that time, he was a wide receiver for the Miami Dolphins. But he's also a huge mental health advocate and big advocate of mental health and therapy and treatment for people in the African-American communities. Mm -hmm. Right. And so he tries to spread that message around to get people to take care of these things, recognizing that they're going to have better qualities of life. So you invited me out to participate in the seminar I was going on in Miami that his foundation was putting on. And it was him, Dr. Milo Dodson, pretty accomplished public speaker, a psychologist, and Charlemagne, who is uh, an entertainer. DJ, radio show, podcaster, also, you know, nationally syndicated. But they're all advocates of African-American mental health. And so the three of them are up there. And here are these three really accomplished guys, representative of the community. And you have, you know, this audience of probably three, four hundred inner city, urban adolescents and their families. And there are three of them up there. And they're like, yeah, I'm a NFL football player, and I go to therapy every week. Right, right. And you think about it, because I never had considered it before that day, about the unusualness of that messaging. Right. And what it would mean to those kids to hear that. Right, right. I mean, it's something that, I mean, I've talked to several people about it lately since since the two of us met before, uh, you know, some black men that are working in the field and one of which is working out of Denver, Colorado. And one of the things that he said is that there he's noticed an increase in the number of African-Americans that are engaging in therapy in that area. And I'm trying to think, I was also speaking with someone else about that up in uh, the Tennessee area, you know, and who she, she operates out of North Carolina and she said that she's also noticed an increase of African Americans that are coming, that are seeking treatment for her from her. 
Uh, so, I mean, to me, the fact that they're saying we see an increase implies that before that they saw that there was a deficit, you know, in the number of people that sought therapy from our community. Um, and you and I talked about before that, you know, I have some experience at 13 when my parents were divorced that I was sent to a therapist to discuss what was going on in the divorce proceedings, whether or not I felt that I had any responsibility in the breakup of the marriage. This is coming from the therapist. And what I do remember is, you know, recognizing that the person that I was talking to, you know, number one, that he didn't look like me. And number two, it it was obvious that he was not familiar with my demographic just by the questions he was asking and some of the things that he was implying. I mean, I'm a 13 year old kid that, you know, is uh, the product of a divorce at that time. Curious about what this whole therapy thing is about. And based upon where I had come from, it was something that was they deterred us from seeking therapy, you know, from talking to anybody that was a person of authority, including, you know, therapists, police, social workers. That was just not something that we were supposed to engage in. And this guy is asking these questions that based upon what I've been taught in my family, pretty intrusive. Intrusive and depending on how you read the question, and it's not clear as to why these questions are being asked. We're going to fill in the blanks of that. Mm Mm-hmm. We're going to fill in the unexplained part of that with whatever story we've got going on. And you and I were talking about that. In these urban communities, the participation of a therapist is not something, in a lot of cases, that one has volunteered for, right? Often it's a social worker that is participating in your life or the life of your family as a result of a referral from school or a referral from some, you know, child protective or child welfare services or something. And that in and of itself is threatening, depending upon what your experience or relationship has been with these institutions. Right, right. Now being a therapist myself, just thinking about it now, thinking through it, I should say that the clients that come into my office or the treatment center where I work, number one, some have insurance. You know, that's not necessarily a guarantee within an inner city. And I'm speaking solely about, you know, inner city people that are African-American or minority. And they're apprehension about seeking some kind of clinical uh, intervention or help. But the people that I'm treating in my private practice or in the treatment center, they either have insurance or they have the cash to afford some kind of therapy. Those people are not having these services imposed upon them, so to speak. You know, they're not having some social worker show up at their door because there was a phone call that was placed by a neighbor saying that there was a potential in neglect or abuse in the household. You know, they're not showing there's not a social worker coming from the hospital because someone went in for some kind of emergency services and a physician became suspicious or concerned about an injury that he saw. So it's not those people that come into my office are not those people, you know? So the demographic that some of my colleagues are talking about seeing an increase in is that demographic. It's people that have insurance, you know, that feel as if there's, you know, some crisis in their life and have heard that therapy is available. It's not these inner city families, not families like myself, that was sit at 13 was sitting in front of this guy talking with me about my 
parents being divorced. And the reason we were having this conversation was because there was a concern, you know, that potentially I was having some issues that were related to the breakup of my family. And so the questions like this guy was asking me that I thought were intrusive were also intrusive because I felt that what was happening in our house, you know, based upon what I was taught was none of his business. (laughs) So, you know, so this guy that doesn't look like me that I would have never seen in my neighborhood is asking me what happens, what has happened in that house on Vanette between your parents that may have potentially impacted you. And it's like, are you crazy thinking I'm going to ask that? <laughs> well, I'm thinking about like the tone that it takes, right? And, and some right. of the things that you said. We want to make sure that you understand it's not your fault that your parents divorced. And I can think about the reaction of a 13-year-old kid being like, you know, I hadn't really considered that possibility until now. Right, right. <laughs> until right, someone suggested, right. was it, did I have something to do with this? Right. I hadn't right. thought about it until just now. Thank you for uh, planting that into my developing and impressionable mind. I mean, so the um, Kenny Steele's piece, for me, the impact it had was that here are these, you know, obviously inner city children you know, that are watching, like you mentioned, watching their role models on stage talking about utilizing services that some of these children have never even heard of, you know, that are talking about some of the benefits that they've gotten from, you know, engaging with these therapists, some of the things that they've learned. I mean, these guys were debating back, not debating, but they were talking back and forth about some of the things, some of the prizes that they had gotten from having these kind of therapeutic relationships. These kids probably never heard that in their households, you know, and not ever heard it from, you know, men of that stature. So to me, that's what was pretty cool, you know, that they would have that kind of access. That was my thought, was the role modeling of it, right? Because you can't replicate that in any other way. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why I was so impacted when I saw first time the Brandon Marshall story. Yeah. When, you know, he was on the news and there's a YouTube clip that circulated around and all of his advocacy for mental health when he openly admitted that he went into McLean Hospital to be treated for borderline personality disorder. He had a real Mm -hmm. crisis in his life that really impacted his personal life. It impacted his career, his ability to do all the things that he had been doing, performing at a high level. And he's like, yeah, I went to treatment. And I went to treatment for borderline personality disorder to this McLean Hospital. Told everything. That was really amazing to me because it's kind of like a double stigma barrier one he's admitting to mental health problems right but he's also talking about borderline personality disorder which within the field is historically gender biased towards women so essentially you know at that time or times prior to that you associate that more with female clients than males even though that's actually not accurate and the wrong lens to view people because you know over time since it's become more okay and appropriate i've I met quite a few male borderline clients, many, you know, and maybe there's as many as there are women. I don't know. But uh, the gender bias, I think, continues to be more against women. More women are more likely to be diagnosed with it than than men. But he's like, yeah, I'm a professional athlete, and uh, the mental health issue I have is borderline personality disorder. And I think after the whole mental health thing, 
came out, signed on with the Jets, and he had like a couple of really great years with them. I think one year he came pretty close to like leading the league in receptions. And I know that because he was on my fantasy football team that year and really <laughs> like helped me get into the championship because right. the guy was like like a vacuum just, you know, gobbling up these passes and, you know, accumulating yards and everything. So it's kind of cool that you can almost sort of correlate his success later on in his career with maybe the adjustments that he made mentally because that's what Kenny still said Kenny still said that uh, he was having some struggles in his career and going into therapy specifically working with this lady who actually spoke at the conference right. and she was uh, something of like a performance coach who had who helped him to like visualize being successful in different things. Uh, it helped him tremendously and like revitalized his career. And, you know, I think he's still playing. Yeah. Yeah. I think the last time I saw he was playing with the Saints. I mean, I'm not sure he's, who he's playing with currently. Now in the, uh, who he's moving on to or maybe remaining with the Saints in the offseason. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I appreciated that piece too. You know, I appreciated the fact that someone could actually speak something therapeutic in a practical sense into his life and to his game. Because I think the thing that he talked a lot about was the miracle play, the Dolphins against the Patriots, that final play. He was the one that like started that process of pitches that ended in the game-winning touchdown. I mean, so to know that, you know, this guy found himself in a position where he felt that potentially his career was in crisis to going to therapy and it leading to this point in his professional life, you know, his football life that he was confident enough to initiate that kind of outcome. To know that a therapist or someone that was at least therapeutic in his life at that particular time lent to him being in that position, you know. And again, we're talking about someone that's speaking to an audience of youth that are not necessarily in touch with those kinds of resources. Yeah, man, it was pretty cool. You know, and then you have... Charlemagne the God, and like you said, Dr. Dotson also on stage, Charlemagne the God being someone that has this national appeal to that community as well, you know, because of his platform, you know, on a radio program that's pretty popular and the number of rappers that come in that he interviews and he just has this persona, you know, in the black community, specifically with youth because of his connection with the rap world. And for him to be on stage, you know, talking about mental health and how important it is that those resources be offered in a, in a city, you know, it, it mean, it had an impact on me again, coming from, I mean, I wouldn't say I come from the inner city. I would say I come from, uh, you know, a working household, a, a blue collar household. <laughs> I'm laughing because it's like, I remember government cheese though. <laughs> and peanut butter, you know, so <laughs> I know that's not middle class. <laughs> You know, but again, not having any, uh, I wasn't familiar with those resources myself growing up, you know. I feel like rap music did so much to educate, like, the larger culture about the nuances of those things. Because <laughs> I'm like, I know about government cheese and the big jar of peanut butter <laughs> from rap music. Right. I think right. there was, um, I think there was actually a song 
that referenced both of them, you know, like tomatoes, potatoes, something on toast. You know what I'm talking about? And a big jar of peanut butter. I forget who it was. This is back like in the 80s, and I think I just destroyed it. Sorry. To the original artist that did that. But you learn about, like, oh, this is what it is, you know, and this is a thing that other people familiar with that you don't know. Right. And I had a moment like that when we were talking about the Kenny Stills, the Still Growing Summit that we went to, because you and I talked about it afterwards. We talked about it here. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Tommy, it's incredible, you know, what he's doing for the community and people should know about this and mental health and the African American communities and such a wonderful thing. And you're like, yeah, man, like there's been people working on that. You know? <laughs> like, like it's it's only new to you, Eric. Like there's a lot of people who know about this and been thinking about it. A lot of them are black, you know? <laughs> So the black doctors and mental health, but we've been talking about it, dude. Like it's, I know it's new to you, and we're glad you're getting on board with the idea. But like it's been discussed, right? Right. And I was like, oh. you know, you had that moment. You're like, oh yeah. Wish I, wish I was a little more hip to it beforehand, but that's all right, you know. And it's, I mean, it's, um, it's a lot more intense than I'm even aware of. The, um, I met a young lady. I can't remember her name right now. At onsite, I was there for a workshop. She's in private practice, her and her, like a friend of hers, who's also a colleague, are in private practice together. That's the lady I was referring to up in North Carolina. And they have, um, I mean, a pretty booming practice, you know, with, you know, black people that are going in for services. I mean, she was extremely articulate about a lot of black history. And that was something that she was also offering, you know, within that community. You know, so she's playing this dual role in the black community, you know, where she's offering some educate some cultural education as well as some therapeutic services which is a great overlap in my opinion at least it's totally cool because if you're looking at it programmatically maybe from a standard practice you wouldn't necessarily incorporate that in right but if you're really targeting a demographic and speaking to the needs of the demographic and that's what people are signing up for learn a little bit more of your history, learn a little bit more of your culture. And there are issues that maybe are unique to us. And so that historical context is going to speak to the issues that are unique to us and probably help you get a step towards like resolving some of these things that you might be dealing with that are typical to us. And some self-esteem boost. I was, um, I attended, I know we talked about the, the movie One Night in Miami. I think it's called a docudrama. And uh, so I was attending a, I guess I'll, I'll call it a summit or seminar that is currently going on down in Miami. It's called The Greatest Weekend. And what it's referring to, it's talking about or commemorating uh, the fight between Sonny Liston and Muhammad Ali that took place down in Miami. And so last night, two uh, Muhammad Ali's neighbors that lived next door to him down in Miami uh, were attending and talking about what it was like to live next to next door to at that particular time Cassius Clay, you know, and, and talking about you know that night that he fought Sonny Liston and the following morning when he actually decided. Or not decided. I'm sure he decided prior to that. But the following morning, where he announced that he was changing his name to Muhammad Ali, you know, they talked about the impact that it had not just in their neighborhood, 
well, not just on their street in those three houses, his house and their two houses, but how it started to change that that entire neighborhood. You know, they talked about the transition from color town to overtown and, you know, Muhammad Ali's um, part that he played in this entire transition. You know, so just imagine if you are someone that goes in for some kind of therapeutic or clinical services and you happen to live in that demographic, you happen to live in that area. You know, and part of uh, the issue that you're struggling with is finding your own identity. You know, who you are, who you, where you fit, you know, what uh, about the place that you come from or the people that you know that could potentially be inspiring and that you find out the guy that used to live in your neighborhood or used to live in your city is the greatest of all time, you know, is the gold of boxing uh, and that there's this place, it's called the Hampton Hotel or Hampton Inn um, down in Miami is a place where you can go to learn more history about where you come from, so to speak, you know, that, I mean, what better self-esteem boost than that, but to talk about the foundation of your community, you know, and the place that you played a part in for some major part of your life. So it was just part of, it's pretty cool for me to be a part of it. And I'm not even from Florida, much less Miami, you know, but to like be in a place where I know that um, one of our big contributors to this culture actually spent a lot of his time, you know. In that show that you and I were talking about earlier on Epics, the Bumpy Johnson story where Forrest Whitaker plays Bumpy Johnson, shows Harlem during the 1960s and there's a lot of emphasis on Bumpy Johnson's alleged relationship with Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. I don't know how historically accurate the show is, but Mm -hmm. it's super Mm -hmm. cool to imagine that they were interacting in the ways that they were because there's a lot of it is them sitting down at the diner and just talking about Malcolm X's counsel towards Bumpy Johnson as a community leader. What is correct for him to be doing and how he presenting yourself our community right right and somewhere in there muhammad ali becomes part of that story like cassius clay comes and it shows the relationship between cassius clay and malcolm x and them interacting yeah and his ultimate like conversion to islam and how he took the name and all that right and that's such a massive story in our culture because Muhammad Ali, the greatest, he was a conscientious objector to fight in Vietnam. Right. And was immediately punished for that, was accused of being anti American, mm-hmm. and was stripped of the ability to box. They took him out of boxing for like three years, I think right. it was, right. before he came back and continued winning. But the question that you ask is like, okay, black people are allowed to have success in sports as long as they don't undermine the value system of the larger culture around them. And if you do so, then you're unpatriotic and we'll take it away from you. And I have to imagine that message kind of, you know, in his story comes through pretty clear. Right. They have a Muhammad Ali exhibit at the, the civil rights museum in Atlanta. Oh, wow. I went there to my uh, wife and son to look at colleges actually. And we were in the city and, Checking out, so because Atlanta's like a cool city, right, right. and uh, checked out the Civil Rights Museum, which of all the things that we saw 
was really my favorite. Like I, I just thought it was awesome. Yeah, that one is nice. I didn't. I missed that exhibit. That that was cool. It's um, not a huge exhibit, but it's a big poster of him, and there's some explanation of what he did and you know why he's there. It was, it was, it was pretty cool. Yeah, that is. I mean, that is a that museum is 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 super cool. There's so much information to to take in. You know, it's hard to absorb it all. It's just so many different uh, exhibits to look through. The uh, the counter is in there. You know, the um, there's just a lot in there to take a look at. The counter was one of the most impactful. You know, just to explain to people who maybe are unfamiliar, basically they replicated the lunch counters from the places in Mississippi and Alabama where Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement and people would stage these like Mm sit-ins. So they would go into whites-only restaurants and they would sit at the counter and they would just sit there and be harassed because they weren't going to leave. They were trying to make a statement. And so you would sit at the counter and you could put on headphones and they would play for you what sounded pretty accurate, the kind of harassment that these people would experience. So it was almost like the patrons of this restaurant and the shopkeepers and the cops and everybody who was going to try to take you out of this restaurant like they were yelling at you. You had right. headphones on right. in high definition. You're listening to people <laughs> scream at you, call you names. And if you can imagine, they're also like touching you and pushing you and trying to throw you out and spilling coffee on you and all this. But you get some idea of what it might have been like for these people that were trying to do these things. Right, right. And they had a similar exhibit with the Freedom Riders, you know, the people who were riding into Mississippi to try to first attempt to address voter suppression, Mm. right? The people who were riding into these cities to encourage people to come out and vote and to protect them and all this. And, you know, what happened to those folks? Same thing with the headphones. When you get off the bus, what you're likely to be hearing and what people are saying to you. And, you know, those, I mean, some of those people were killed. Right. 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 Yeah. It's pretty wild. If you haven't been informed about it or you kind of loosely informed and you want to learn more, that's a great way to really kind of immerse yourself in it for a second and get some idea what was going on. Right. 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 I mean, because you're right. There was a lot going on. And um, just being down in Miami, I, I did not realize just I mean, I had an idea of how much history was actually in the state of Florida. I mean, I've, you know, did a fair amount of traveling myself through the state of Florida because I was reading about some of the historical events here in particular, you know, like St. Augustine and and uh, Jacksonville, you know, some of the major events that happened in, in both those cities, you know, in um, Mims, Florida, uh, civil rights martyrs whose house was a was blown up in Mims, Florida. Harry Moore, Harry T. Moore. The acid poured in the pool in St. Augustine prior to Rosa Parks having that seat on the bus that is historic. It was uh, some of the some of the history books say that what happened in St. Augustine was really the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, and the real start of the civil rights movement. But then the look to go down to Miami last night and listen to some of those guys talk about what was going on at that particular time, you know, and how uh, uh, I-95, the construction of that, how it broke up the city and even added more to segregation. Just, again, it's just so much history within the state of Florida that I didn't know about that makes it even more, not ironic, more significant when Kenny Stills and those guys actually come to Miami 
and do uh, a still growing summit, you know, because they are I don't know whether or not that was orchestrated, you know, or calculated, but they did that summit in an extremely historic neighborhood, you know, where those kinds of services were absolutely not available at that particular time. Yeah. The context of it. Right. You and I have a lot of shared history with culture, right? You and I both worked for the Seminole Tribe of Florida. I I was there for about 10 years. I think you probably there about the same amount of time. Uh, Seven and a half. Okay. And we overlapped for a lot of it. Even their history of the original Seminole Wars and how as this kind of mobile tribal culture that was really having to move and be nimble because they were being chased. Because the whole Seminole War was really about the government forces trying to move them onto reservations out west and the fact that they just were resistant to They weren't going. You know, right. The unconquered tribe. They were just not going to go. And they were going to fight it down to a man. And along the way, these escaped slaves kind of bonded with them and became part of the community. And it sort of, I think, bolstered the ranks. And there was a lot of talk about what that was, that what those relationships were like. And, you know, a lot of the slaves coming from Africa, very relatable to tribal culture, and they had a lot in common. Mm -hmm. They had a common enemy. So they, easy to bond, easy to work together. And so the interpretation of that experience and what it looked like on the other side, pressure from the plantation owners Mm -hmm. to the United States government, get after these people, they're stealing our property. These escaped slaves... They're not escaped slaves. They're stolen property. Right. This tribe of Native Americans has stolen our property, and you need to go send somebody in there to get it back. Right. All these different examples. You can go on forever about it. Right. I was thinking about our work at the tribe, and when you're working for a community like that in their community, and it starts the moment you get up in the morning and you go onto the reservation and you go through the gate onto the reservation, you have an an employee ID and it's almost like your passport in a way to get onto the reservation. It reaffirms for you that when you're on that reservation, you're a guest. You're not really... You're not family. You're not family. You're a guest and you're (laughs) here because you have an invitation to be here. Don't get your invitation revoked. You'll be able to continue coming. You know, It was really so eye-opening because the more you try to sort of integrate yourself and be part of what's going on to to help really you know how much the difference is and how you can easily even with good intentions make mistakes right not know and so when you think about being culturally informed or cultural competency that's a real thing because the possibilities for miscues and things are just like without end right i mean i didn't I remember meeting a couple of guys that, you know, both both of those guys were traditional. And I used traditional instead of saying, you know, full-blooded. But they were both guys that were more than willing to share as much as they possibly could about the culture. And so I would ask them questions all the time. I mean, it would seem like questions that were common sense. You know, but I was asking questions about what I had learned watching the Long Ranger or Rawhide to see whether or not what I picked up on those Saturday morning cowboy shows was true for Native American culture. And they had no problem 
telling me, you know, what was idiotic. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, I felt like that was the only way I was going to learn by just coming out and asking questions. And they had no problem telling me what they weren't going to answer. You know, what questions were off limits too, which it helped a lot. In the beginning, of course, it was hurtful. I mean, because I come out of this culture outside of the needing the passport. I come out of, uh, I hesitate to call it American culture, but I come from off the reservation where you could just ask just about anything, get an answer to it, or at least Google it if you don't know, into a place where people are telling me outright, number one, I don't belong there. I mean, just outright. And number two, that there are certain things about them that are none of my business, no matter what my role is or what kind of education I have. Matter of fact, they don't have any respect for my education. <laughs> and that once my shift is over, yes, you can go home. You know, so all of that stuff to me, man, was I was I was a little taken aback. It's a lot, especially when you're in behavioral health. Right, right. You show up, and you're like, hi, I'm here to help. <laughs> That's great. You know? Right. We've had social workers and behavioral health people coming from like the beginning of social work. <laughs> and people kind of come and go, and some of you are all right, and a lot of you are not. And, you know, we'll let you know if we need something. And I think that was part of it, too, that so many, so many people come and go. Well, I remember as you're gathering information, it really is drinking through a fire hose because the expectations that you might come with, what you think you're going to be dealing with and what you actually end up dealing with, it's really, it was wide apart. Right. And, and I couldn't have predicted any of what I experienced, no matter what anyone had told me prior to going over there. And so I remember there was uh, an opening like a, a new building on the reservation. It's often very ceremonial. You know, you might have a, a pastor or religious leader or one of the traditional, someone like a medicine man come out and bless the new building. And you might have a political leader come out and speak and give a speech about the purpose of the building and, and those kinds of things. It's important because they're very community oriented and there's a lot of like ceremony attached to these kinds of things. And so participating in that was really cool. As I remember the first one of those I went to was the opening of a building. After the ceremony, I was sitting, I was looking to try to maybe meet people. And I was surprised that people seemed reluctant to want to meet me. <laughs> There's a way that it happens. It's like a form of benign neglect, right? It's, it's, I would call it, that's what I would call it. I would call it benign neglect. It's sort of like you're, an unwelcome guest, like kind of a creepy uncle who's just kind of hanging around. They're not going to ask you to leave, but no one's really going to go out of their way to talk to you either. So I'm sitting on a bench and eating the food, and because I was told you always it's respectful if right. there's food served, you eat the food and you hang it. So I'm trying to do all of the things that I was instructed to do. And I'm sitting there and we're eating, and, um, and someone finally came and sort of sat next to me, and I'm thinking, oh, here's my chance to have a conversation. I was waiting for that moment where you make eye contact so you, there's an end to start a discussion. Never happened, man. <laughs> Dude, you guy sat next to me. Very polite, you know, like just not engaging me. There was not like an opening there. And finally, after a, a few uncomfortable moments of that, he turned and he looks at me and he's like, you know, I grew up in Cluiston and I went to school there and I had some white friends and... I remember when I went to this person's home, they had a bowl of plastic fruit on the table. And he says, you know, I was thinking to myself, plastic fruit 
white people are kind of crazy. <laughs> you know, and... I, and, and <laughs> oh man and you know what i did man i went home and threw out the plastic fruit (laughs) on the the kitchen table bowl of wax apples that we had so i can't look at these anymore but you know man it was actually really illuminating that that happened and when you you think about it later because it's that whole piece about cultures that are diverse from your own, like cultures right. that are different from your own, is that you almost can't help it. It's that sort of like ethnocentric trait that maybe we all share, that I have my own worldview and it projects out from me. Right. So when, you're eth- when you have that ethnocentric thing, which I think is central to people, we always view the world from the perspective of they are different from me and how are they different from me? And I want to adjust to how these people are different from me and what we're not thinking about or what I was not thinking about was how I might be perceived as being very different from them. And I got a real world-class education in that in that one moment, right. you know, that I was like, wasn't clear what the purpose was for me even being there and why would anyone want to talk to me or should anyone talk to me at that, you know, like uh, until I earned that opportunity by demonstrating that I had some value. And there were a lot of good clinicians and talented people who would come and go and maybe couldn't really make it there for periods of time because adjusting to this way was difficult for Mm -hmm. people to sort of have to unlearn so much and I think that was really part of the education was to endure that, what felt like rejections, right, right? right? So that you could figure out how to correct and be, I learned so much from being there. And I just, you know, you really have to be a fan to work there, mm-hmm. you know, like a fan of the people and a fan of the culture to work there and to kind of be able to hang around for for any longevity because there are so many of these awkward moments and so much adjustment that you have to make it's difficult right i mean i think part of the benefit that i had is you know my my father is i I wouldn't call him stoic but he's a man of very few words because i remember growing up there would be times he and i be in the car driving he was uh he owned a uh, a construction company, I would say, a roofing company. We'd be driving to a site and we'd just be silent. You know, I mean, we could drive, we could be in the car for hours and not say a word. Just, you know, but what he taught me is how to be comfortable in that silence, you know, because it was just his presence was enough at that time, you know, just being with my dad, hanging out with him, super cool guy. And so being at the tribe, I mean, it was a couple of different things. It's number one, I think you and I talked about how going into master's and my graduate cohort, my skepticism about becoming a therapist, period, you know, and psychology and the fact that, you know, there's not a lot of brothers that had these uh, <laughs> that established these psychological theories. You know, it was like the Freuds and the Adlers and uh, the Carl Rogers and none of those guys were, you know, from the hood. So my attitude was, how is it that I'm going to learn what I need to take back to my community by studying the masters, so to speak? You know, they don't come from places that I'm familiar with, the theories that I'm reading about. 
I don't really see how they're applicable to my neighborhood or the people I grew up around. So how am I going to take this information? So I already had this this cultural twist in my head anyway. You know, I was already thinking about the differences between the, you know, the different ethnicities and, you know, and how this psychology thing would work with these different ethnic groups. And so going through the tribe, I had both this appreciation for, for silence or being an introvert, however you call it, whatever you want to call that, as well as this skepticism about psychology and how it's applicable to that to ethnicities. So I've had both these things working at the same time when I started at the tribe. So I think it benefited me to to a degree because I felt the same way they did about certain things. I felt that sometimes just sitting and being present with a person that you know, I could appreciate that more than actually hearing what this person had to say to me. And when they were talking about how little my education meant to them, I was like, you're right. <laughs> you know, so we had that in common. But the um, I also had this piece where I wanted the opportunity to get to know the population. And there were times when I was faced with the fact that it was going it was going to be on their time. If they decided to let me in, it would not be, you know, at me trying my best, you know, to get to know someone. It would be only at their time. And that was uncomfortable. You know, and it's funny that you say all that because I see that in you. And I admired your ability to do it the way that you did it. And you made far inroads in the things that you were doing. Aftercare, you were a participant in a lot of the programs, you know, and involved with people who were really doing things. And I think they did respect you. And I think you were regarded highly and included more so than most of the outsiders. No, thanks. And it's funny, like everything you say about your background, I'm listening to it, admiring it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of like the opposite of all of that, unfortunately. Like, yeah, I grew up in a very loud family where everyone was always sort of like, talking at the same time and it's hard to get a word in and in those moments of silence you know i had to learn myself i had to learn to manage and control the neurotic anxiety that comes with those things to not feel the need to fill silence with empty words which essentially is what makes people annoying you know and i have to learn those things over time to just be and to just kind of hang and just allow that to exist. And challenging myself in that way is, is a much more peaceful existence because you become attuned to the amount of noise that goes on in your own mind and how overwhelming that could be if you're constantly like a slave to it, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And the impact that's going to have on like, your propensity to connect with like another, you know, your ability to connect with another person, if all of that is like in the way. So essentially I really tried to focus and learn to listen because the cadence in those conversations could be very different. And that was one of the things I picked up on like these quick exchanges that I was used to growing up in the Northeast, where if you overlap the last, three words of someone else's sentence it doesn't mean anything they're just gonna they're just gonna keep right on going right, your right. friend from new jersey or whatever is just gonna keep talking right on over you and it doesn't matter no one cares right. you know you'll finish the conversation eventually because we're just all sort of that's how we do it 
<laughs> right, 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 right. Different story with traditional folks from the Seminole tribe. And it was more what I kind of picked up or my interpretation of it. I don't even know if this is right. It's just my interpretation of it is that the cadence of these conversations is very different. And it's more like you take turns talking. And when someone's telling you something and it's their turn, it could be like a really long turn. You know, it could be like, it could be a really, we could be talking about like a 20, 20 minute monologue about something. Right. Where the topic of the conversation may seem to shift in this big circle, but it comes back to the original. It does eventually. And you got to kind of like wait for it. And you got to be patient and tolerant because if you interrupt that process, you jump in on the middle of that. It's done. It's done. And the interpretation on the other side is here's another outsider who doesn't respect my words and is unwilling to listen because he would rather talk and, you know, say his thoughts and that was one I picked up on early. And, and again, you learn to listen. You learn right. to sit, especially when someone tells you something. Because when you ha- when I've gone through s- for a long period of no one talking to me about anything, and finally someone was willing to tell me something, you better sit and listen to what that is. Because now you don't see it as just an entitlement of, hey, I'm here. People should talk to me. But now you see it as kind of a privilege. Like it's a little bit of a gift that... Someone, especially like an elder who's respected, is going to tell you something. They want you to know something. You, you better, you better like still your mind. Whatever you know that you have an appointment at nine thirty. It doesn't matter. You're gonna sit and listen to what this man has to say, and you're gonna listen to it in its entirety until you are dismissed. (laughs) (laughs) That's true, though. It's true. It's valuable too. You know, because the information, like you said, it was it was it was so rich. You know, in its content. But it did, it did call for uh, some patience. Yeah. Well, it was always, it never failed because it was always like when you're mentally in a hurry to get to some other thing and you know you're going to be late and you can't rush it. Like if someone decides they're going to tell you something, you got to sit and listen. Right. Your meeting attendance or whatever is not necessarily that person's priority. That's right. That's right. And then you would find when you got to the meeting and you told them, you know, who you were sitting and talking with that the meeting wasn't. A priority, you know that that conversation was more of a of a of a priority. Any chance I got, any time that happened, and once it happened, I recognized the significance of it, and whatever I was doing, it stopped. Right. Whatever hour of evening it was, it stopped. I was going to listen to that. I learned a lot of that working for Helene Buster and her husband Andy. Shout out to Helene and Andy. We both love you and think you're like amazing because they were very generous with their thoughts. And they really were very patient people. If you were earnest and they knew you were serious and wanted to help, they would sit you down and they would tell you the things. They would talk to you. Right. You may not always like it. That's right. You know, it was going to be direct and blunt, but they would tell you things. They would talk to you. And they would talk to you at length. You would hear everything. You learn a lot that way. I remember one of the most profound experiences I had working for the tribe was when we went on that youth conference the one that toured the path of Osceola's final days through St. Augustine to Fort Moultrie, uh, I think it was South Carolina, right, mm-hmm. where he died. We had real storytellers that were with us and the youth that would stop and kind of break down the significance of that place. And we would almost get this kind of contrasting view 
because you'd visit historical sites and you'd get like a tour and an explanation from the ranger that was there. And then you'd go back to the hotel and they would gather all the kids and people from the culture department would break it down and tell you what really happened. And I remember there were certain stories that stay with me for the rest of my life, just the contrast in that, because that's where you really break down the difference between history as it's recorded in books versus the history as it's recorded by a culture that relies primarily on oral tradition right. that transfer information from one generation to the next. Right. And we were talking about Wildcat, Katakuchi, and his escape from St. Augustine Jail. And in the history books, uh, what it says is that he and another group of seminal warriors, they starved themselves down to where they could fit between the bars. Hmm. And we were corrected on that and said, no, that's not what happened. What happened was they, they used their medicine and their spiritual connection to shapeshift so that they could escape, like wow. change, change shape and mm -hmm. escape. And it's something you could do if you're seminal and you know how the medicine works and you're like spiritually aligned to be able to do things like that. That's what really happened. So we want you kids to understand the story that you're reading in the book's not the correct version of it. And there's a million other examples right. of that. Right. You can't believe what you read, but you can rely more on what we tell you. But here's the thing about that. It was all broken down. So oral right. tradition, you might hear a version of the story that's different than a version that somebody else might tell. Right. So right. I'll tell you one version of that story, and another tribal elder, maybe your grandfather, whoever, will tell you that's a story right. that sounds a little different. We have our own interpretations of these things, and they may be telling you like a different part of the story. Take it all in and realize that's how this works, and it's all true. Right. And here's the other thing. This is something I, as an outsider, learned the hard way. Any of you work with other cultures, they say that a smart guy learns from his own mistakes <laughs> and that a wise person learns from the mistakes of others. I'm inviting you all to learn from my mistake, and this is what I did, right? When you're dealing with a culture that's not your own, and someone takes the time to explain something to you about how something works. And you're like, oh, okay, now I know because I heard it from an insider. So now I know the story of this tribal leader or this tradition or this clan's belief about this particular tradition or whatever it is. If I have that piece of information and I try to share it with another tribal person whose perspective on that is different, I'm going to be viewed as a moron. <laughs> who's basically <laughs> spreading misinformation. You hear the word misinformation a lot these days around here. I'm going to be spreading misinformation. It's really, really frowned upon, I think, in lots of cultures. It was definitely frowned upon then. Be like, hey, this guy told me this, so this must be the accurate. You don't know. You're just right. saying it wrong. And, right. you know, and be like, oh, no. Now, if they're having this conversation and one of the tribal people tells a story, and the other tribal person has a different perspective on that story, they can debate that. That's healthy. That goes on all the day. That's conversation. They do that amongst each other. That's part of the thing is to debate and clarify and try to come to an agreement on what is the shared understanding of that tradition or whatever. We just can't participate in those debates. No, no, you shouldn't. <laughs> right. Everybody wants so desperately exactly. to be inside. I knowledge. heard. Well, yeah. <laughs> been around, I've been working here for six months, and uh, I talked to one person about this, and here's how it works, right? I know you've been living here your entire 40 years life, but I'm going to tell you what I right. heard and clarify right. it for you. 
Um, yeah, that was frowned upon. So anybody who's listened to this, if you're going to be involved with cultures that are different than your own, don't do whatever that is. Whatever I just described, don't do it. Don't Just because one person tells you something, don't feel like you really know, okay? Right. Try to gather a few perspectives and do more listening than talking. You're always going to be better <laughs> off. I mean, those relationships stick, you know, the uh, relationships with the people on the reservation or off the reservation, the Seminole tribal members, uh, the relationships stuck. I mean, I still have some of those friendships, although I no longer work there. Uh, I mean, but that's been synonymous with most of the places that I work, to be honest. You know, like you said, you and I work together at wellness as well as at the tribe. You know, I worked at Hanley for a minute. I still have some of the people there that I worked with. I mean, it's something about the, should I call it the clinical community, the mental health community, the substance abuse community? You know, our relationships seem to be long lasting, whether we're working together or not. You know, we seem, I guess part of me thinks it's because, <laughs> part of me thinks it's because of the stuff that we're talking about, because we talk about uh, much more than just superficial or surface type issues. I mean, we talk about, not just what's going on with our clients on a much deeper level, but often we talk about what's going on with each other on a much deeper level, you know. And I found the same with the relationships that, you know, you and I established on the tribe. I mean, we would spend time with their families. You know, we were available when someone died in the family. We were there at some celebrations. And I just think that those types of relationships stick. It's really interesting. I have a really bad habit in my personal life. I'm addressing it now mm -hmm. of I could silo portions of my life. I was there at one point, I moved to the next thing and to the next thing and to the next thing. And I find that as I had entered my fifties, a longing to kind of go back and bring the pieces mm. together, like the nostalgic thing. And especially this part of my career. And I, I really, people ask me like, why am I doing a podcast? You know, what, What's the purpose of it is to promote your private practice and tell, not really because there's so much less labor intensive, like easier ways to do that. Right. right. It's, it's about this other thing. I'm not even sure sometimes, but it's really about that reflective going back of all these different people I've met and these things I've heard and these experiences I've had working in behavioral health care and really to South Florida behavioral health care because it's the Silicon Valley of addiction rehab. Right. You right. know, so most of us get our start in behavioral health care on some level in that. And maybe you're one of the people that stays in it long time or or not. But it's a big industry and there's lots and lots of people. Even in private practice, I'm still participating in all of that in some way. The people that you meet and the stories and the personalities yeah. and all that. Like, you know, I'm a fan. I love it. Still continue to love it. It's still interesting. It's interesting enough to me that I think if I meet with some of these people and record these conversations, it would be interesting enough. I feel like someone should listen to this. Yeah. Like that's how much I think of all of that. And this is in some ways an attempt to go back and kind of recapture all of that and bring it further and keep it alive in my life. With the tribe, I had become a little bit disconnected. You know, I went off, I was clinical director of a treatment program for a while. I, was a primary therapist in another program for a while and finally have gone out into private practice and do, you know, you, you get busy, you have family at home, things move in life. And I remember 
starting to have that nostalgic feel about the Seminole tribe and that book up there, the, the 50th anniversary of the signing of the tribal constitution. My name is actually in there from when I played music with Robert and R.C. North, you know, the names of the band members, because it's featured in there. It's just my name. That's it. Yeah, yeah. No pictures, nothing. But <laughs> the fact that my name got into that book, to right. me, was, I just think it's super cool. I agree. Yeah. And I lost the book in my travels of, you know, going from one office to another, somehow or other, got misplaced. And thinking to myself about this whole issue of, it's not good to lose things like that. And I was uh, sad that it was gone. And all these years later, I, I went to go find it and on the internet, found a copy to buy like on eBay or something. So I got my book back. The day after I got this book, I get a text message from Robert North. Hey, how are you doing? You know, I see on Facebook doing different things. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind getting together with me and RC for wow. coffee. Coffee. And I was like, that's crazy that that just happened. Because right. I hadn't talked to anybody in about five years. And then I get this book back. And the next day, I'm hearing from somebody. That's that's crazy. So I go and meet him for coffee. And we're talking about it. And I tell him that story about having misplaced the book, gotten the book back, and then right afterwards hearing from them. And I said, in your culture, does that mean anything? I said, you know, sometimes we call them coincidences or meant to be or whatever that willing something into existence through you know, these metaphysical things. Does your culture have that? Like, how do you explain that? I wanted to know. And he almost kind of laughed that I was struggling over what to him was so much more of a simple concept. And he and RC both very knowingly, he said, to us, when these things align, it just really means that you're walking the right road. Mm. If you're walking the right road, if you're walking the right path in life, spiritually, emotionally, interpersonally, that these things just kind of fall into place. And that's a well-lived life flows. Right, right. And, it's like, and that's kind of more how we view it. You must be walking a right road for these things to come together in a way. And you got to figure out what that is so that you could stay on it. Right, right. Oh, that's pretty, that's cool. For yeah. me, it was. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. For me, it was kind of like life change. Walking the right road. If I ever write some memoir book, that's probably going to be the title. <laughs> right. Of it, you know? Right. I mean, because those are, to me, those relationships are like super important. All of the relationships are super important. I mean, I try to uh, stay in touch, you know, with the people that have some value or um, where I have, I use the word connection. You know, where I've had some kind of connection, try to stay in touch with those people. And it doesn't, not that it has to be confined to uh, some specific time period. In other words, not as if I got to call them every week, you know, or I got to make contact every two weeks. It's just making sure that at some time, at some period, I reach out, you know, to see how that person's doing, what's going on. You know, like Mark Lichtenberg, you know, uh, he and I were texting the other day. And it's not as if we stay in touch all the time. It's just that if either I'm reaching out or he's reaching out, you know, it's just making sure that there's some continued connection because those people were valuable in my life, you know, and not wanting to lose those connections. Yeah, it's funny that we come to this because I think that's the one piece that really transcends all of the cultural differences, right? That we are in some ways more alike than unlike in the necessity and value of human connection, right? Mm -hmm. How difficult it can be to achieve for some people to feel connected to other people, 
but how it's really actually important to so many people. And that's, you know, like they say, like part of the reason why the pandemic was so hard on people was uh, it it created lapses in like human connection for mm-hmm. people because everyone was so isolated or lots of people were isolated during the process. And it's it's funny that it all kind of circles back to that. You know, that that's all that everyone I think really wants is to feel part of things and, you know, not alone, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's the thing I appreciate about the work that we do. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, we connect to the clients that we work with or the groups that we're working in and we help to teach them how to better connect with the people that they potentially have lost connection with, you know, whether it's because of addiction or some mental health challenge or psychiatric issue that they have, we kind of help them learn how to cope with that in a way that they're able to rediscover or strengthen the connections that they have with the people that are that, you know, that are their loved ones that they're closest to. And I love that kind of work. Love it. Well, Tommy, this has worked out really great. I am in this moment a little bit nervous because I'm going to have to try to save this thing. I want to do it well. So I just want to thank you again for coming out and spending time with me, especially after that other debacle (laughs) that you were willing to do this. And I feel like we did well and that it was a good conversation. I really enjoyed hanging out with you. Thanks. Me too. I appreciate it. I appreciate you inviting me back out. Let me ask you this. I don't even think I asked you this last time, but do you want to say anything about your private practice or how people might get in touch with you or what you're available for? Um, sure. The name of the private practice is It's Balance Matters. I mean, I work with a lot of couples right now with relationship issues. Also, my practice is from a spiritual perspective. My background, I don't know whether you know. I'm sure we've talked about it at some point. My undergrad is in ministry, so it's a theological undergrad. I graduated from Palm Beach Atlantic, which is a Christian school. So I work a lot with clients that are looking for that type of assistance in their recovery process, their mental health, you know, their anxiety or depression challenges, that they want a therapist that has a spiritual approach. So again, Balance Matters, you have my phone number, so it wants to get in contact with me. I am accepting new clients. Right now, I'm working in Delray, across the street from or next door to Starbucks on Linton Boulevard on 4th Avenue uh, in the office with Michael Herbert. 